Hello and welcome to episode 158 of Blockchain Insider. My name is Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Kai Sheffield, head of crypto over at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? I am feeling good. Excited for this episode. Let's dive in. This is going to be a, a really, really good news show for us. Uh, we've got a little bit of an announcement. Blockchain Insider has surpassed 2 million downloads. The little blockchain podcast that could. Look at us go. Huge, huge thank you to all the incredible guests who've joined us uh, and all the listeners. Yeah, I just feel super grateful we get to hang out with smart people and, and learn about this space together. So excited to see where we can go from here. Can you believe this is our job? This is awesome. It's so fun. Um, and speaking of uh, the job, let's get on with it. And uh, today's episode is a new show, and we have some killer stories. Uh, the first story we're going to cover is like Paradigm and A16Z have backed an Ethereum scaling startup called Optimism at a $1.65 billion valuation. FTX is doing all of the things all of the time. And Biden's executive order is making waves. Europe's rejected a proposal limiting proof of work. Like all of the things have been happening in regulation. So we're going to unpack all of that. And to unpack it, we are joined by some amazing guests. So making a return, long overdue return, is the one and only Richard Brown, CTO at R3. How are you doing, Richard? I'm good, thanks, Simon. You're right. It's been so long. It was pre-lockdown. I remember coming to your office. It was so long ago. That's forever ago and yet three seconds ago. Um, amazing how that happens. Uh, next up, we have Brett Harrison, who is the uh, US president over at FTX. How are you doing today? And uh, tell us a little bit about you, Brett. Yeah, doing well. Thanks uh, for having me on. Known Kai for a while. And so it's, this is a pleasure to be on the podcast with you guys. Uh, just a quick bit about myself. I got my start in the industry as a software developer in the proprietary trading space. Most of my time at Jane Street Capital. That's where I overlapped with Sam Bankman-Fried as the CEO and founder of FTX. And then he brought me over to FTX in May of 2021. And so I've helped uh, lead out the US operations for FTX here from our uh, Chicago headquarters. Perfect, thank you so much. And making another return, we have uh, the one and only Emily Nicole, who is crypto blogger at Bloomberg News. How are you doing, Emily? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, uh, last time I was on Heroes at Dow Jones and now I'm at Bloomberg, so everything changes, but I'm always writing about crypto. <laughs> yeah, I know, you're in demand. That, and that's a great problem to have. Um, and you're back on here because uh, of, of those insights. So I do recommend people check out uh, everything Emily writes. It's always fantastic. But let's jump straight in. Um, Paradigm and A16Z have backed optimism. Is this optimistic? Let's find out. Um, so this is a $150 million Series B funding round. Uh, apparently the total value locked or TVL on some platforms like optimism, known as L2 platform, have exploded over the past year with around $5.7 billion currently held on these networks. Optimism is itself approaching around half a billion in total value locked, although Arbitrum is closing on nearly $3 billion as a market leader. Unlike some of its competitors, Optimism is actually a public benefit corporation with an open source code base that has already led to a number of popular forks. Truly, truly optimistic. Um, Kai, do you want to give us the TLDR on what Ethereum scaling and L2 is about and how you understand it? Oh my, I, I could try and do my, my best here. I think one, I think this is one of the most exciting areas of, of crypto right now is just all of the innovation that's happening focused on scalability. And 
you know, there's so much demand for Ethereum and Ethereum block space. You know, people complain the gas fees are high and and there are many different teams that are working on approaches uh, to solving it. So I guess, as I understand it, I'm gonna need some help from Brett and Richard and Emily and, and everyone here. There are really two categories of approaches that are being taken. One being optimistic rollups, uh, which you know, Optimism and Arbitrum are two of the leading teams there. And the other being ZK rollups. Yeah, with StarkNet and ZK Sync as as two you know, teams there, and and there are some differences in the approach you know that each of those projects are taking and you know, how each bucket works. But the biggest TLDR takeaway for me is that it's this idea of executing transactions off chain and then bundling them together and submitting a batch to the blockchain. But the question is, how can you do that in a secure way? And what are the attack vectors? Which one of these is going to win? I don't know. So curious, maybe Brett to to start. Like, how do you navigate and think about these different approaches to to scalability? Yeah. So first, you're you're right that it all stems from the fact that people want to be able to use blockchains for high throughput applications, but blockchains, especially the layer one blockchains, really aren't very high throughput. Think about Ethereum has something like what ten transactions per second. Twitter has something like 10,000 messages per second. So we can't put Twitter on Ethereum as it is not right now, Let's, let alone the fact that it would cost you, you know, $50 to send a tweet. So one approach to this is, well, one can make a faster layer one blockchain, but some, a lot of people want to be able to use these highly decentralized secure blockchains like Ethereum. So people are building these side chains where they take all the transactions and they compress them as much as possible, both in terms of the data to represent what has actually happened, but also in terms of what they need to actually post back to the layer one to prove that the transactions happened. And so that's the two differences is the optimistic rollup and the zero knowledge rollup. So the, on the optimistic rollup, they are only posting proofs if things look like they've gone wrong. So if it looks like there's been some fraud in the system, it looks like the, the total like result on the chain isn't what they expect it to be, well, they can always go back and post sort of a proof of fraud. For the zero knowledge rollup, they're posting proofs of validity. So it, 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 it's a very small kind of probabilistic signature that shows that these transactions, this batch of 100,000 transactions actually occurred and it does it sort of in a proactive fashion. And so that's sort of the differing approaches between the two. But the goal is to try to keep some semblance of decentralization on these side chains so that they don't lose like the DeFi aspect, even though they're doing a lot of the stuff off the main chain and putting it on the main chain later. I, I love that point. I think the trade-off is is always the things that we're seeing with these with these different approaches. Richard, how, how do you think about those definitions so far, and how have you gotten your head around it? Yeah, I really like it. Um, the one one of the ways I think about it is, you know, if you're trying to reason about something, I always think, well, is there is there an is there an analogy from our own lives that can kind of give us a bit of insight? And probably the closest I ever got was imagine the five of us were were going to have a game of poker or something, but we were playing with playing with real money. We each put fifty quid in. You know, if we were doing it on layer one, it would be like every single game, every single bet, every single raise, one of us would be making a payment across from our bank to somebody else or 
into the middle um, and every single transaction would go through the banking system. It would take forever. It would cost a fortune if you had to pay per, per transaction. Or you could do the way everyone normally does, which is you put the money into the pot or in front of you. And then it's only at the very end that you settle up and you know, whoever's won gets their money. Um, but at the very end, you know, imagine if you were then going to just, you imagine you're doing it on paper, but you need then to send an instruction to your bank to say, you know, Simon won, everyone's got to pay 50 quid to Simon. There's two ways to do it. You could just trust me to tell the bank the truth. And if I've got it wrong, you come after me afterwards and say, no, no, Richard was lying and here's the proof he was lying. Or I could go with actually a signed record that said, look, these are the games we played. Everybody signed it. This is the proof. This is what happened. Um, and it's not quite signed. You know, they use um, proofs under zero knowledge and so forth. But that's effectively it. You either do the final settlement with a proof that's unimpeachable, or you say, and you expect people to trust you, here's what happened. And you then almost, you, you dare people to defy you and prove you wrong. And that, that's how I distinguish between the two. Emily, any, anything you want to add to those points so far um, as, as how you've kind of come around to it? And what do you think the impact of some of this investment looks like? I think obviously investing in this, Richard made a really great point. Like it would be incredibly intensive if you had to keep going back to layer one and registering those transactions all the time and, and putting it in real world context is really helpful in that way. So obviously these investments are really useful if crypto is to get any kind of scale. Um, we Everyone in crypto always loves to say, you know, we're only just at the very beginning of all this. And in 11FS, I guess it's, it's 1% finished. And these kinds of solutions are, are evidence that, you know, we're trying to move past that stage now. I wonder whether actually if you were to look at a hype cycle where you would kind of put these these kinds of innovations coming in, are we still in early adopter phase if this is what we're trying to solve? Um, or are we really trying to get some standard crypto framework now? Yeah, well, is it going to stand? Because you've not got VHS, Betamax, DVD, HD, DVD. You've got six, seven, eight different, 12 different uh, competing potential standards, all of which have hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars worth of value locked within them. And of course, it's not just a financial transaction rail, it's doing compute as well. So the Ethereum layer one doesn't just store the transactions and move them forward. It also does computation. It does, uh, if this, then do that. It does the, the logic layer. And so the idea, I think, of separating some of this is not just about separating the transactions and matching them together in a financial sense, but also separating, as, as Kai and Brett mentioned, the compute away from happening on chain so that somebody can do the logic, but the result is placed on chain so that I can go back and see, well, was the, and I can work from the result back to the compute that should have happened by doing the compute myself somewhere else. So I make the, I'm, making the network less efficient, not expecting the network to to do it as much. Um, Emily, you were picking up there on, on sort of the format wars. I mean, Brett, um, at, at FCX, you guys support just about everything. How do you think about this format wars and this explosion of different things? Do you think that's a challenge for consumers, for businesses? Um, and how will we overcome that? Yeah, totally. I think, you know, as a centralized exchange, one thing we try to do is provide sort of a standardization normalization layer on all these different formats and blockchains and coins, because ultimately most users are not going to want to speak the raw format and protocol language of all of these different options out there. And there keeps coming new ones that are getting invested in. And, and that just adds complexity to the space. And it's hard to know which ones are going to win out in the long run. And so I, I think that from a consumer adoption perspective, most people are going to want to interact with applications, not with blockchains, and are going to want those applications to take care of 
doing what's necessary technologically on the back end. And so at, at FTX, that's sort of like one of our main goals is support the ecosystem, help invest in these different uh, layer one, layer two solutions, don't necessarily try to predict where the winners and losers are, but make it as easy as possible on the user experience side to transfer crypto, to buy NFTs, to do different kinds of storage of crypto, things like that. I think it comes down to what's the consumer trying to get done. And uh, if it, if their intent is there and you can make that possible, should they have to worry about that complexity? And Kai, I know that's a subject dear to your heart. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think that the on-ramps are super important here because the, the current experience right now of bridging you know, from layer one to layer two is not a great consumer experience. You you have your non-custodial wallet, you know, you're switching which network it's on, you know, you're going to, you know, there are a number of tools to bridge, but then you're waiting, you're paying high gas fees. And so it feels like there will be consumers who just never interact with the layer one, that they should be able to, you know, purchase whichever asset, a stable coin uh, or a crypto asset directly on that layer two. But then it's the question of, are they going to consciously know and say, you know, I want USDC on Arbitrum versus on Optimism? Or like Brett said, can that automatically happen in the background based upon the application that they're trying to use? And so I love the way that the FTX has you know, done this in, in, to some extent with stable coins, where you have USDC that someone can deposit into the platform. You don't you know, distinguish between USDC on Solana versus USDC on Ethereum. You just say you have USDC, and then you can withdraw it on whichever network that you want. And so I'm really interested to see how the consumer experiences abstract away switching between networks, as well as how the on-ramps remove the need to ever touch the, the layer one. A- any other thoughts, uh, Emily, Richard, before we move on to the next story? Maybe um, maybe one, which is, is, and hopefully this doesn't come across too much as shilling, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. As I looked at these these projects, um, it was fascinating. You know, you um, you interact with Arbitrum or Optimism, and you know, you go to their websites. All the apps they support are listed, and I kind of wonder in the future, um, you know, wh- why wouldn't you go to the the apps website and then see all the places where it's supported? And I guess you can do them both, but it's interesting how it's it's network first, layer two first, and then the list of apps. But the thing that you see on those websites is, and not, this is not this is not just about those two projects. Projects is there's this talk of privacy, and of course, with certainly with zero knowledge rollups, you know, there is a degree of privacy because what you did is um, is invisible from most people. But I think what people miss is it's not invisible to everybody. You know, there's somebody who sees it. You know, whoever's constructing that zero knowledge rollup in, in the zk sense, or whoever's doing the optimistic rollup, clearly they have to see everything in order to um, in order to to produce that rollup. Um, and I only mention that because I didn't know that, which I guess you know, bad on me. I didn't know that till my team pitched the, the Obscuro project to me a while back, which you know, they've deliberately built to to solve that problem. But I genuinely didn't realize that was a problem that needed solving. I, I thought these things did offer full privacy, so that was kind of like a lesson learn for me yeah when we're dealing with decentralization if somebody else is doing the compute who's that somebody else's computer and what data can they see so there are always these these trade-offs to to kind of think about and uh, not everything is simple the world is full of complexity still even though we're getting l2s and things may get faster we're going to have to make trade-offs and i think that makes a ton of sense well listen we, we could probably go into the the whys and the wherefores for a little bit longer but hopefully that's been useful but we have to get to the next stories um, so FTX has announced its expansion into Europe. FTX Ventures has invested $100 million in the money app 
Dave, and Naomi Osaka becomes FTX's latest ambassador. Not like you didn't have enough cool ambassadors already. So I'm just going to throw straight to you, Brett. The expansion into Europe, what's the rationale there? Um, and what, what can we expect to see? So FTX wants to operate in every jurisdiction around the globe. But what's difficult is that regulatory clarity on crypto and whether what kinds of products can be offered, whether that's spot or derivatives or other kinds of assets, um, is not super clear or is in the process of development in each, each place. So for example, in the US, uh, we haven't been able to offer our, our most interesting and, and promising business, which is our derivatives business, for lack of having the right licenses. But now with our acquisition of LedgerX back in October, we now have the CFTC licenses to be able to operate a derivatives exchange for US customers and are working with the CFTC on our margin model. Similarly, in Europe, there's certain registrations that are required in order to be able to offer and advertise your services to European customers. And that's something that we have finally been able to achieve through, um, through SISEC, that we now have this registered domain that, is, that we can actually advertise. And that really opens things up for us to do things in a completely regulatory compliant way there. And that's a huge market and one that, you know, up to now, crypto companies have not really been able to you know, advertise to customers because of the regulatory requirements. I think that um, sort of advertising thing is certainly something we're going through in the UK at the moment. Um, I'm going to ask the go around the horn on, on this one with the guests for a little bit before we get to the next story and throw back to you, Brett. I mean, Emily, you've been a watcher of uh, of all things crypto for, for quite some time. What do you think about the, the opportunities in, in the European market and some of the complexities with it? I think Brett actually kind of hinted at it already, but Europe is a, a, like a significantly big player when it comes to crypto exchange traded products and derivatives. Um, and so it's, it only makes sense that a business that already prides itself on what it offers in derivatives would want to be present there and want to be able to offer those things too. And it's something I've been looking at a lot at Bloomberg recently is how Europe's crypto ECP market is making plays and performing differently to what you might see in other regions, particularly in the context of um, the Ukraine crisis as well. Just because the way investors approach crypto in Europe is so different, given that they've had access to these kinds of regulated products for so many more years than you might have in the US. CoinShares is one that launched an ETP in, in crypto in Europe in 2015, um, compared to the US, which only got its first Bitcoin futures product in you know October, November last year. Um, so the markets are just completely different. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens when we get a really big firm like FTX that has a lot of money behind it, a lot of power behind it, a lot of promotion behind it, um, and really see how you shake up the market from, I guess, what you'd call the vintage that, that we've become used to. Indeed. Well, known for shaking things up without, without question. Uh, and then, Brett, investing $100 million in Money App Dave, um, go, diving into the fintech world. Um, talk us through that one. Sure. So another thing about FTX is that our product at its core is not really the, the application on your phone or the website. It's our set of core services, um, things like being able to hook up to bank accounts and to blockchains to accept different kinds of fiat or crypto deposits and withdrawals. It's our user onboarding service, which allows us to perform you know, KYC checks and to do AML checks. It's our free market data API, our order entry APIs. So we're the set of core technological services that we can build you know, thin applications on top of. And in addition to our own app with the FTX app on your phone, we are also excited about other technology companies, other businesses taking our services and white labeling them inside of theirs. 
So another example of this is uh, StockTwits, which is like a social US stock investing application. They wanted to add crypto trading to their app, but they didn't have the licenses required. They didn't have the technology built out. So rather than build that all from scratch, they can contract with us and leverage our technology and put it inside of their app underneath their brand, but just leverage, leverage all of our services. So in general, we're excited about finding other fintech partners who have these large loyal customer bases that are doing financial transactions, financial services, they're depositing funds, they're captive with a particular app, they might not necessarily move all their funds into FTX, but they might be interested in trading crypto and we could provide those services uh, through some other white label. Kai, in the US market and elsewhere, we've been talking about the DeFi mullet for a while. How do you think about the, the many different fintech brands and the role that the existing ones ha could play in, in kind of uh, consumer adoption? Yeah, I was gonna say that, do we have to uh, give Dave an official you know, DeFi mullet, you know, status with, with this partnership. I think you know, in general, this could become just a table stakes feature. You know, every consumer facing fintech and neobank, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere on their roadmap is, you know, how do we incorporate crypto assets? Now, I think one question I have is, you know, the, the first ones who did it, you know, with Cash App and, and Revolut and some others, it was super differentiated and it was a way to, to acquire customers and to monetize and increase engagement. If you're the 20th or the 25th, you know, FinTech or Neobank to add crypto, you know, are you always going to be following the first ones or are there more innovative ways that you can bridge it and incorporate it into your core business? Uh, but I think we're getting to a point where there is just a, a lot of infrastructure being built out in this crypto as a service space you know, with Paxos, with ZeroHash, with Nidig, you know, FTX now, Coinbase, like that there's not really an, an excuse that you know, fintechs don't have to build it themselves. It's really a question of who do you partner with and what are the use cases that, you know, make the most sense for the core customer base that you have. Richard, I think we're in this interesting sort of um, hybrid crossover period where like crypto is coming to fintech apps and fintech apps are building out crypto you've been a veteran of the financial services space for some time how do you think about like uh some of the some of the challenges people might face and, and what are those as, as they start to do it it's, it's an interesting one something i've thought about a fair bit recently and, and maybe this is maybe it's more on the institutional side but maybe not is if you are a major bank how do you take how do you take advantage or how can you have a play in 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 the, in the DeFi space or you know the, the the blockchain space more broadly on, on the public side because i see a lot of firms getting into into custody or maybe a bit of sort of you know a bit of sales and trading but the the thing that i i, I can't reconcile is they can do that and they could make some money but you look back to the previous story you were just just we were just talking about a lot of the innovation is actually in the writing of the contracts and the and the, the engineering of the layer twos it's it's you know it, it, it's not it, it's not the traditional work of banks and unlike a few years ago even five years ago you know the banks were to some extent, maybe ignoring the hedge funds, kind of like you know, the apex predators for talent. If they needed to, they could get people, they could hire the engineers to build the systems. You know, that's not the case now. You know, the, the flow of talent is, is from the banks the other way. So how do they avoid just being sort of almost almost like the, the, the commodity player where the actual innovation and the actual value capture is, is from the people who can build these contracts, who can build the, um, can build the, um, the new platforms? I don't know the answer to that, but the, the question I ask myself is, imagine they could, imagine 
imagine one firm wrote the world's most exciting um, smart contract, whether it gets deployed on layer one or in layer two. They build it, they test it, they put it through QA, they put their brand on it. You know, it is it is is the next step forward in whatever, whether it's lending or whatever it is. Immediately, you know, they have to publish the source. Immediately, it gets copied. Someone who's better at memes takes over, and and their opportunity is is gone. So you think, what is the plausible path to them succeeding, or are they actually going to be in this position where they need to invest a little bit, but there's no point investing too much because they're never going to win. So I, I, I think that's that's not intended to be a sort of like you know um, sort of like a council of, of misery. I think there is a way through, but it's it's not obvious in the way that it would have been for previous technology revolutions. Yeah, for big banks, it's use it um, when it's the internet. It's use it when it's mobile. When it's crypto, it's not as easy as just use it because there are all of these hidden complexities. But you know, in the U.S. market, smaller banks are now offering things, and there are other sort of trade-offs and middle grounds. I do think it's inevitable that we will see them start to move and, and make sensible plays. It just takes them longer. Um, and then last but by no means least, I mean, what an ambassador there, Naomi Osaka. Um, but Brett, you guys uh, at FTX work with several sports stars, ambassadors, sponsor sports stadiums. Uh, help me understand uh, this move and, and put into context like sports generally. Why is that so important to you guys? Uh, well, first, it's awesome to get to work with Naomi. I think she's like one of the best athletes of all time. And um, just awesome to have her on the team. She's a great person. Really uh, great to partner with her on some of her charitable initiatives as well. You know, we talk about user acquisition and the different ways you could do it. And we're we're trying to attack that across a number of different dimensions. You know, one way is to try to acquire users through something like Dave, where they already have tons of users of their app and trying to get them to white label our services. Sometimes it's more organic user acquisition through digital advertisements, things like Google and Facebook ads or iOS app store placements and things of that nature. But then there's this sort of unknown quantity, which is your brand. You know, how do you get people to trust your brand over someone else's? You know, FTX US has been around since really the end of 2020. It hasn't been a very long time compared to, you know, Coinbase, which has been around a decade. How do you get people to trust this new entity with their, with their valuable savings to trade crypto? And a lot of that has to do with knowing that other trusted entities out there trust you as well. So Visa is a good example. Like the fact that we can partner with Visa lends a lot of credibility to FTX because Visa is such a trusted institution in the United States. That's also true with Tom Brady or the Major, Major League Baseball. I mean, think about what a time-honored institution like Major League Baseball had to do to take on a crypto partner, you know, not just like, you know, a soft drink or something like that, right? And and People understand by association that, okay, well, if Major League Baseball did their due diligence on FTX, then they must be someone who really takes, you know, has a culture of compliance, who is a serious corporation, who really wants to be here for the long run and invest. And so that's a bit behind a lot of our kind of bigger partnerships that have less obvious, you know, individual user acquisition or ROI, uh, but are much more about kind of establishing our brand presence through these partnerships. It was interesting. Mario Gabriel, in an amazing three-part write-up of FTX called FTX the Everything Exchange. And I think that's a really interesting way to to think about if the future of everything is going to be an asset class, if we see everything financialized, then why wouldn't that be sports and art and music? And why wouldn't you want presence in those spaces as well? So I find that super exciting. Uh, Kai, close us out here as you think about this space outside of FTX. 
FTX, it's getting extremely competitive to have a brand and to, to stand out. And as we were talking about, every fintech company is going to become a crypto company. What are the things that are going to make you successful in this space, do you think, in the coming years? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I, I think first, you know, just on the kind of crypto is becoming cultural. And so it's fascinating to see that you have you know athletes, you have entertainers that independently are coming into the space and they're doing so both to invest, uh, they're doing so, you know, creating products, you know, with things like NFTs. And so it just seems like a very natural fit that the brands and the platforms that are able to, you know, not just have, you know, athletes and, and cultural influencers as their spokespeople, but really as their partners uh, and to actually build products together you know, that's a, a, a unique way to be able to, to resonate with consumers when, you know, I feel like Tom Brady actually likes to use FTX. You know, it's not that that crypto is some weird thing that he's just showing up for the commercial. And I think just how much this has happened over social media um, and, and how viral it has become of, you know, hearing people who you look up to talking about this space and, and why it resonates with them. Uh, I think is going a long way. And it's amazing to think like two or three years ago, you would never imagine a conversation between Tom Brady and someone else on Twitter that's you know, about you know giving someone you know Bitcoin. Uh, so it's it's exciting. And Tom Brady and Vitalik's exchange on Twitter, Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum, is well worth checking out if you have a device with you now and you can you can search for that. I would I would heartily recommend it because I think it does speak to the cultural impact that this industry is starting to have in a way that some people get very snippy about and snooty about, but actually I think is, is also there's real evidence starting to show. All right, we do have to just take a quick pause here whilst we thank our sponsors and we will be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. Alrighty, thank you so much, sponsors. Uh, Kai, what's the next set of stories? Uh, welcome back. Uh, for the second half of the show, we're going to start off with the crypto community is celebrating Biden's executive order, uh, while Europe rejects a proposal limiting proof-of-work crypto assets, but sets draft rules for sustainability. So let's start with the executive order. You know, President Joe Biden officially directed federal agencies to implement a strategy for policies and regulations on digital assets you know, like crypto. Uh, there were many agencies involved, many reports being kicked off, a lot of writing to do. So Brett, curious, your, your thoughts just in the US you know, first, like what were you expecting going into this? 
And then what's your reaction to the the ultimate you know, executive order here? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, we talk about how much things have shifted, you know, before the break in terms of, well, now you can see Tom Brady and Vitalik having a conversation on Twitter. I think we've also seen things shift on the regulatory and lawmaking landscape in terms of how people are thinking about crypto. Um, this is now a, a bipartisan issue where people think this is a systemically important technology. We want to support it. We want to learn about it. We want to protect consumers, but we want to allow innovation. And I think we didn't really know what to expect from the executive order, but we were worried that some, some of it would become too prescriptive. You know, we must create a central bank digital currency. Stable coin issuers must be banks. The federal regulator for crypto markets must be this agency or that agency. And instead, it was very much a much more humble document than I expected, where it was, please go out and do the research and come back with a report and tell us what we should do, if anything. And I think that was very promising, um, just because it gives an opportunity for agencies to actually come up with good you know, research and data and suggestions and talk to industry participants like ourselves and talk to academics and talk to other regula regulators and talk to other lawmakers and get like a good sense of what is important from a policy perspective. And so I think that that's why it was celebrated because it was just much less prescriptive and much more hopeful that this is something that the you know administration wants to seriously engage in. And Emily, what, what do you think is going to result from these reports? You know, is this all great news that you know when the reports are done, you know, everyone's going to love crypto or might the reports uncover and say, wait a minute, you know, we need to take action in, in certain areas. How do you see this this playing out? I think it was very interesting that the fact sheet kind of didn't say exactly which departments would be involved in building which reports, but it kind of gives the impression that every department's going to be involved in some way, because it definitely means that they're thinking about a detailed approach. The only problem is, is that as we all know, the crypto ecosystem is pretty broad in its range of opinions. And that means that there's a likely chance that the opinions we get back in these reports are not all going to mesh together in a way that will create a nice, you know, happy framework that all the crypto companies can abide by in future. Um, one thing that I think is was really interesting was that it did mention, you know, that they want to reduce the impact on the environment through this fact sheet. You know, the executive order thinks that's an important thing to be working on, particularly in the context of what we'll talk about in a minute with the with the European Union um, regulations as well. But it didn't really give any kind of instructions on how to do that because we have no way of doing that yet. We've not really seen anybody successfully try and implement regulation that can analyze that part of crypto. And it's a part of crypto that is extremely divisive. If anybody spends more than 10 minutes on crypto Twitter, you probably see fights about which statistics are accurate and which aren't. So that'll be extremely interesting to see what we get back because the reliability of information that is out there on crypto. And it, it's still such an early day that we don't really have anything that's like, yes, this is the truth. This is the one thing that we all agree upon. And so it'll be interesting to see how regulation is is framed in that way. Yeah, I, I thought it was notable that the Department of Commerce, the Department of Labor, the U.S. International Development Agency were all involved, which I assume some departments that you know, haven't really spent a lot of time looking at crypto, at least not formally, uh, so, Simon, what, what are your thoughts on kind of bringing in some of those groups of are they going to be able to get up to speed in 180 days? And 
Who's actually going to you know, do the jobs uh, writing reports? Where are they going to get the information from? It's going to be difficult without question. Uh, and also, not all of the reports have the same length of time. Some are 90 days, some are 180 days, some are given a year. Like, And how do these reports overlap, as Emily was saying? So it's going to be difficult, but it's also kind of a better position than the one we were in, which is much more reactive. We were seeing different agencies reacting to different events. And the, I think the good news here is this is very proactive. It's let's let's brigade all of these agencies and intentionally send them after each of the aspects and try and bring this story together. And I think the other positive thing about that is, and let's not rush. We do not have to pass any new laws or any new policies. We have a regulatory framework that can be enforced today. And let's take our time and get this right. That is phenomenal to hear that. And the report to me struck a very balanced tone. While on one side, it's talking about the market is very, very large um, with a three trillion market cap in November, um, but there's opportunities to make payments more efficient and fair, that the US needs to be at the forefront of innovation and currently gains a lot from the power of its tech sector and the innovation it had. It also called out risk to consumers. It called out risk to sanctions breaches. It called out uh, risk to privacy and security, which I thought was really interesting. So very, very balanced overall, but this could have been a lot scarier. It could have been a lot more direct. Um, and the fact that they're willing to take the time doesn't necessarily mean we're gonna get a great answer, but it creates space for the industry to do the right thing, which is to educate, inform, and of course, get its own house in order and show how it's doing it. So that's exciting. Yeah, completely agree. And a big part of it was the U.S. should explore a central bank digital currency or, or CBDC. And so, Richard, ha hasn't that work already been going on? Wasn't there a paper from the Fed? Like, what additional things do you expect to come from this related to CBDC that weren't already being explored and researched and written up in, into previous papers. I, I was really pleased to see that because you're right, there's, I mean, not just in the US, I mean, there's a huge number of projects all around the world and there are some countries where CBDCs, as we know, are already live, typically fairly small countries, but others others on their way. And then, but you look at the major organ, major, major, major currency areas, the Eurozone, pound, dollar, that there's, there's work afoot, but none of them are yet publicly committed to building one and going live with one. So you look at the US, just a few months ago, there was um, that really quite interesting project Project Hamilton from the Boston Fed with uh, with with MIT, um, but it was deliberately scoped and presented as phase one of a series of of, of, of research exercises. You know, it, it's not a project intending to go live, at least not yet. So what I took from the recent um, presidential um, announcement was actually this is getting serious now because I mean, and we've experienced this as well because you know all three were doing a whole bunch of projects around the world. The ones that move forward quickest are the ones where you've got past research and possibilities to some concrete requirements. So take the US, you know, some, some questions that I hope are explored in the coming weeks and months are, okay, so if you're building, if you're thinking of building a CBDC, and let's assume it's retail, okay, fine. What are some of the requirements in some of the most controversial areas? You know, is this intended to be a full replacement for physical cash, for example? Um, physical cash you know, is going away through lack of use, if not through um, you know, any, any government activity. Physical cash works offline, so is offline a requirement? It's doable, but it's really hard. Yes or no, must that be a requirement of a CBDC? Um, must it be symmetric? You know, If I want to use my card, I can, but it's a lot harder to be paid than it is to pay. M must a retail CBDC be symmetric or is it okay if it's not? And then the, I guess the elephant in the room is, does it need to be confiscation and censorship resistant? Physical cash is, but it comes 
just with a built-in, if you like, um, sort of like a, a built-in sort of curve that means the more you hold and the more you want to transact, the harder that gets until it's almost impossible. Should that same thing be engineered into a, re- to a retail CBDC? Is that even possible? Or are we not attempting to provide censorship and confiscation resistance? In which case, is it actually um, in any way analogous to cash? You know, it, it's easy to have those conversations and then skip past them. But once you actually get to engineering, you need answers to them. You know, does, does this need to be censorship resistant? Does it need to work offline? Does it need to be symmetric? Until you know the answers to those questions, you're not at stage one. You can't stop building. And who builds it and what are they building is is kind of the the still the unknown question. There's a lot of talk about it. But what is it? And I think it's good that people will set about answering those. Um, and then on the European side, we saw um, MICA as well sort of come along. Uh, so this is uh, a separate set of uh, legislations and regulations that went through the European Parliament. Emily, thoughts on this one? Because my understanding is it was actually, uh, this is a legislation that's being passed across 27 member states to create a single framework for crypto. So this is sort of almost quite a quite a way in advance of the executive order, which is saying we're going to go away and research stuff. It's like, here are the rules now. Yeah, I mean, it's still definitely in its early stages. They've passed a draft now, but it still has to be debated in trilogue between the three different parts of the EU's legislature. So there's there's definitely still some, some way to go until this actually becomes a rule that um, crypto companies can rely on to base their, their own company policies around. What's interesting, I guess, is that this draft stage has actually formed the crux of the real tense part of the negotiations, even if it was only the beginning, because of the there was an amendment inside the regular the the draft that said, you know, it was trying to combat the environmental impact of proof of work cryptocurrencies, specifically um, in the beginning anyway, and then that kind of got watered down to just be about trying to consider how much the worst offenders of, of environmentally impactful cryptocurrencies could be regulated should the EU be trying to put a stop to having those be able to be like common transactions that we would use. If you think it didn't name Bitcoin or Ethereum, that's why I'm like hesitating to name them myself. But if you think about those as kind of being the worst offenders because they're currently proof of work, they would have been given a time frame in which to shift to something more environmentally appropriate, which they're already doing. But it kind of, you know, puts a hard deadline on it, which we know they don't like. That, however, got taken out of the process because ultimately um, it definitely would have made the European um, bloc a very unfriendly place for crypto companies to live if they were being told, you know, by 2025, you need to not have any Bitcoin or Ethereum unless those things shift to proof of stake. So it's a good thing that it got taken out in the end, at least from a crypto industry perspective. But obviously, as I said earlier in this episode, it definitely makes it very difficult for any regulators to really pass anything on the environmental impact of crypto. This was the biggest attempt so far, and it flopped. I think legislating a change in a consensus mechanism of a public decentralized network seems like a challenging task uh, that may not work out very well. But it, it almost it feels like the the environment in the U.S. you know has become a lot more balanced. You know, with the recent executive order, you know, with both risks, but then what are the opportunities and and you know, American competitiveness and and the role of the dollar? While in Europe, it feels like it's still very much risk first. Brett, have, as you guys are expanding you know, into the the region, how would you frame like what are the opportunities for Europe that crypto enables? rather than you know, just some of the current conversations around risks. Yeah, so even though it's starting to look like it's more balanced in the US, there's still 
a really glaring problem, which is that there is no federal oversight for crypto spot exchanges in the US. And there is not clear jurisdiction over spot exchanges between the two primary markets regulators, which are the Securities Exchange Commission and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, um, because Bitcoin is neither a security nor is it a commodity future. And this is different than in most places in the world, like in the UK, where there is like a single markets regulator. And so there's a real opportunity in, in the UK and the rest of the EU to be able to actually come up with a single unified framework that encompasses digital assets and derivatives on digital assets, which is vitally important. This is why this is something that we care so much about because FTX is primarily a derivatives exchange globally. That's so much more um, volume trades in derivatives than in the underlying assets. And that's true in most asset classes, not just crypto, but less happen in the US. And precisely because one of the most important features of these crypto exchanges overseas is that you can you know, buy Bitcoin and post it as collateral for you know, an Ether futures trade, let's say, on an exchange. And having those different kinds of assets relating to crypto be in the same place, regulated in the same way, or operating in the same way is so important for it to function well and in, in, in harmony. And so I think that's the real opportunity here is for the EU to, to provide a unified framework for crypto assets and everything related to crypto assets so that there can be these healthy, harmonized ecosystems growing there, which might not be easy to do in the US for some time. I think just to close this out, Kai, um, I just wanted to just mention that they did do a couple of things here that I think to, to Brett's point, one, this is intended to be that unifying legal framework. Two, they said that the European Securities Regulator and the European Banking Legislature uh, uh, banking regulator, the EBA, will have supervision of both asset referenced and money tokens, respectively. Asset referenced tokens are stable coins that are backed by something that is not fiat. So, for example, MakerDAO and DAI. And also, not only would these be licensed, these these stable coins that are crypto backed, but they would have minimum capital requirements. So they've effectively legitimized stable coins in Europe, albeit created some rules around it that might make them difficult to use. Uh, and then also uh, each service provider exchange will have to be authorized with a license, have to have minimum liquidity requirements. And they'll be expected to manage risks like insider dealing, market manipulation, disclosures, all of the kind of stuff you would expect a, a good exchange to do. But this is now with a license. So this is what I mean about Europe is, is kind of making some rules and setting some ground that the rest of the world then has the choice like the US to go, well, do we adopt that? Do we change that? And then do we end up in a world where we end up with the same old market where different regulations apply in, in different markets and we, and we lose some of the benefit of this technology? So I just wanted to throw that in before we get to, to the, the last section here. Yeah, so I think we have a few minutes left for honorable mentions. Yeah, this part of the show, we want to quickly round up on some other stories that we didn't have time to cover. Uh, so first is crypto startup founded by ex-Meta employees raises $200 million. And this is Aptos Inc. That's the latest crypto effort you know, from the, the dashed dreams of Diem, the abandoned digital currency project you know, from Meta. In Dreesen Horowitz led the rounds, which included Tiger Global, Multicoin, and Three Arrows. And so it's fascinating to see you know, the the DM and Libra alumni you know, move on and found you know, many different companies. And a lot of the the technology that was built that just never came to market. You know, is there another path you know, for a DM like network? At least the underlying 
the, the underlying infrastructure outside of, of Meta. Indeed. We're going to be one to watch and see uh, where that talent goes next. So just on that one, um, the there was a really interesting tweet by Stephen Sanofsky of, of A16Z the other day about something nothing to do with crypto. It was about the history of Windows. And it turns out it's almost 20 years to the day from when Microsoft shuttered Hailstorm, which was their controversial set of online services for calendar identity mail, um, you know, way ahead of its time. And it met so much opposition. Everyone basically, you know, Microsoft was the sort of like the bet noir at the time. And his observation of that was great idea, probably a bit too early, but exactly, perfectly, entirely the wrong company to launch it. And it just feels like you know, history has repeated itself here. You know, this certain DM may turn out to have been a pretty good, pretty good idea, but it was never going to work with Facebook, any, anything involved. But the history with Hailstorm 20 years ago, almost to the day, uh, was quite notable. Right idea, wrong company, sometimes is a thing. So the importance of branding, huh? Okay, it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. And we want to give a shout out to a tweet which comes from Bitcoin Magazine. They're quoting the Airbnb CEO saying we are, quote, absolutely looking into accepting Bitcoin and crypto. It is the most requested feature. Interesting choice of words there. Emily, uh, Airbnb on crypto? I mean, any company looking to directly accept crypto is always, you know, taken with a pinch of salt because it can be very difficult. I'm sure Kai has more insight into that than I do. But so that's why the most often the, the most popular way to use your crypto, if you wanted to actually spend it, is via a gift card. It just enables that extra layer of, of regulatory acceptance. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what Airbnb does with this. If anyone from Airbnb is watching or listening to this, I hope they uh, reach out to FTX because we can help them. But seriously, one of our biggest things that we do is we have a product called FTX Pay, where a merchant can place a button on their site and get paid in crypto through FTX. And if they can't accept crypto directly, the customer can pay crypto and it can be converted to dollars before it ever reaches them. And so on their side, the business doesn't change, but on the client side, they can still actually pay with their with their cryptos directly. And we've done everything from letting people fund DeFi wallets through FTX Pay to people actually paying for down payments for condos in Miami using crypto and all this through, through FTX Pay. And so... I think this is going to be a very large space, which is the kind of consumer pays in crypto, business receives either fiat or crypto on the back end, and uh, one definitely to watch. Just goes to show, it just goes to show, doesn't it, as well, like how ideas can be ahead of their time. You know, another example, I remember going to, I think it was 2013, Bitcoin 2013 in San Francisco, and BitPay were pitching their product, which was exactly that nine years ago, uh, but it's taken that long for it to uh, hit the mainstream with something like Airbnb, they go ahead with it. Well, I guess there were less people that were crypto-rich digital nomads back then who probably lived out of different Airbnbs around the world. Kai, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think that first we've seen accepting crypto directly is a, a, a pretty effective marketing tool that you're appealing to a large community and you're kind of waving a flag that you know, we like crypto. Is question still remains to be seen of how much uh, volume you'll actually get. And you know, I think there still are a lot of challenges for particularly mid-sized to large merchants to have the right infrastructure. Absolutely. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Let's start with Emily. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole. You can also read all my stuff on Bloomberg and you can also sign up to the Bloomberg Crypto Newsletter, which goes out twice a week and it's completely free. Perfect. Uh, Richard? Right, so you can find me um, pretty much anywhere as Gendal, my middle name, G-E-N-D-A-L. Gendal should always find me um, or head over to r3.com. Uh, Brett, how are you? So I'm primarily on Twitter at Brett underscore FTX US and you can find us on our website FTX.com or FTX.US. Perfect. Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and Visa.com slash crypto. As for me, you'll find me at SY Taylor on Twitter or at 11FS.com. Thank you for listening. Over 2 million of you on this little podcast that goes out once every two weeks. That's absolutely incredible. And if you want to go ahead and smash that subscribe button, you'll never miss an episode. Uh, and a lot of people seem to seem to quite like the show. So uh, if you really, really do love it, leave us a review. It helps us out so, so much. And we'll look forward to speaking to you soon. Bye for now. <laughs>